Welcome to Running Mead Radio. This is Joanna Barron, and special thanks to Dob Feldman for our new original composition theme music, as well as Matt James in the studio. Okay, I'm going to be very brief in my introduction because there's a lot going on in this episode. In fact, so much that I've decided to release it in two parts. Um, One part this week and the second part will come next week. Uh, We are debating the use of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms so-called Notwithstanding Clause, Section 33. More specifically, we're discussing the Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall and his recent decision to respond to a court holding that public funding for Catholic schools, which included funding for non-Catholic schools wishing to attend those schools, violated the state's obligation of religious neutrality. We do briefly discuss the matter of whether there was a charter violation and whether the charter analysis and the court decision was correct, but our discussion is more focused on the broader question of the Wall government's decision to indicate its intention to respond to the court decision by using the notwithstanding clause. In other words, effectively sidestepping the impact of the judgment one way or the other based on a putative differing interpretation of the obligations and constitutional rights. My guests are three young and illustrious constitutional law scholars, Leonid Sirota of AUT Law School in Auckland, New Zealand, host of Double Aspect blog, uh, Maxime Saint-Hilaire of the Université de Sherbrooke, both of whom are arguing against the resolution Uh, as follows. Regardless of the merits of the Good Spirit School Division decision, the government of Saskatchewan was justified in stating its intention to invoke the Section 33 Notwithstanding Clause in response to it. I'm also joined uh, on my debating team, as it were, by Jeff Siglett of Stanford's Constitutional Law Center, arguing in favor of the resolution. For background, I'll link in the show notes and on our website where this podcast will be embedded to a piece Jeff and I wrote for Policy Options, in which we argue that the Wall government was justified in its use of Section 33, as well as to a few posts of Leonid's on Double Aspect blog resisting the use of Section 33. And of course, please do tune in next week for the follow-up episode with some more freeform and colorful discussion amongst the four of us. Enjoy. Okay, so we're talking about the Good Spirit, uh, Good School Spirit Division case and the Saskatchewan government's subsequent decision to invoke the notwithstanding clause. Um, And because we would like to focus on whether it was proper for the Saskatchewan government to invoke the notwithstanding clause, we are going to somewhat bracket the conversation about whether the substantive charter legal analysis and the analysis about the infringement on freedom of religious freedom rights um, was correct. But Leonid Sirota and I are going to talk about that for just a few moments now because we do disagree substantially on that. Okay, so Leonid, since uh, I will be going first on the Section 33 discussion, would you like to take a first stab at articulating why you thought that Justice Lay's uh, analysis in the GSSD decision was correct? Sure. It was correct. In fact, I have said that it is obviously correct because the Charter since the very beginnings of its freedom of religion jurisprudence has been held to embody a principle of religious neutrality. The state cannot favor religion, cannot disfavor religion, religion generally, or one religious denomination in particular. Uh, What happens with the uh, 
good spirit school division uh, case is that the state was favoring Catholic schools. To some extent, this is necessary because of the commitments uh, to separate denominational schools that exist elsewhere in the Constitution and which are protected explicitly by Section 29 of the Charter. But the Section 29 doesn't authorize the state to favor those separate schools beyond what is already protected. And once Justice Lay finds that only the denominational aspects of those separate schools are protected, and that those include educating Catholics, but not educating anyone else into the Catholic system, then that is not protected. And that becomes state favoritism for Catholics, which uh, is not justified. And the government didn't at all do a good job of trying to justify it. But in particular, the government did not even invoke school choice as a reason for justifying this uh, favoring of Catholic schools. And, and there's good reason for that which is that if you want to offer school choice, that's very easy. You offer school choice to everyone and not just to those who are content to send their non-Catholic children to Catholic schools. So the school choice justification wouldn't have flown and the government didn't even try offering it. And so the decision uh, was quite clearly correct. It's a violation of religious neutrality and uh, there is no good justification for it. Okay, so for, for my part, uh, my response to that is that I think, Leonie, you're not making any serious analysis for considering the impact of Section 93, which, um, which constitutionally protects the rights of denominational, Catholic or Protestant, whichever is a religious minority, school boards. Um, you do refer to it, but you don't seem to seriously consider what ramification it ought to have in the religious freedom Section 2A analysis. And similarly, I think in terms of the GSSD decision, Justice Lay's decision is it's proceeds in a very sort of piecemeal fashion, um, which nominally accepts the requirements of a sort of historically contingent constitutional requirement, which is expressed in Section 93, um, but then totally compartmentalizes these requirements in its subsequent analysis. And the funding of these non-Catholic students at Catholic schools, of course, is a direct result of Section 93, which does single out specific denominational groups for favorable treatment, whether we like it or not. And by the way, I think we all agree that if we were to get together and draft our rationalia constitution today, none of us would none of us would propose such a such a practice. And yet the history of Confederation has left it with us, and all of us seem to value um value the the benefits of constitutional and historic text. So I don't well, see how well, we can I might, assess. I, I might accept that, Joanna. Okay. Well, we'll, 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 leave, we'll leave the time for interjections after. So right. I just wonder how can we assess the constitutionality of this practice of non-Catholic students attending Catholic schools outside of its legislative basis? Again, to reiterate, I, I agree that neutrality vis-a-vis -vis religious groups and all groups is, is our general operating principles, but the specifics of how it looks in a case like Good Spirit has to be considered in the context of Section 93. Um, and I'll just make one more comment 
um, which is in your commentary on this on Double Aspect blog, Leonid's blog, which is excellent. Um, you make reference to Justice Dixon's comments in Big M Drug Mart about the Lord's Day Act. And in that case, uh, in Big M, as well as in the Saguenay case that Justice Lay refers to in, in his decision, you have the presence of coercion. You have the presence of a religious practice being imposed on being imposed on a populace without their consent and and here you don't have this because there's a necessary opting in in the case of non-catholic students attending catholic school boards and i really do think that the that the absence of coercion should be should be an important variable here um so anyone have any questions or, or comments rather uh, whether leonid or, or or max or jeff yeah maybe i do well, um yeah um, I just want to uh, point out that I, I tend to agree with Leonid on, on the substance of the, I mean, on this issue of the decision, but I, uh, I still think it would be interesting to make, uh, well, actually, I just had a, a quick chat with Leonid on this, but I think it would be interesting to make a comparison with the recent SCOTUS case in uh, Trinity Lutheran, uh, which saw that a, a very strong, uh, neutrality uh, tradition uh, can uh, allow for um, public funding to a religious organization, which has been held not not to be an infringement of of the freedom of uh, of religion. So I, I think I think it's not that uh, that clear a case. Uh, so even though I tended to agree with Leonid, I think I think it need it would need much uh, much further reflection on this because that's very paradoxical. We don't have such a strong neutrality, uh, contrary to what Justice Dixon, uh, Chief Justice Dixon said in Big M Drug Mart. Uh, Canadian histor um, constitutional history uh, has been one of a few official uh, religion, and and after that we had a non-discrimination, uh, non-religious discrimination principle, but we have never had a very strong uh, separation and neutrality principle. And this is pretty, uh, fairly paradoxical that even the U.S. Supreme Court allows for public funding of, of uh, religious organization in some circumstances. So I don't think it's as clear as as uh, Leonid suggests. Well, I, I, I'd pile on to that and say um, there's no need to talk about the Trinity case, the recent SCOTUS decision. There's a direct analog um, that's discussed in an, in an article that uh, Joanna and I wrote. Uh, that's the case of, of Zelman uh, versus uh, Simmons-Harris, where the U.S. the U.S. Supreme Court found that uh, public funding of religious schools and non-religious schools in a voucher program in the state of Ohio was perfectly compatible with with the United States First Amendment's uh, anti-establishment clause. Um, so we so so like you said, it's. It's curious that there is in our, in our southern neighbors constitution where there is an anti-establishment clause uh, as part of the fundamental structure of the constitution. Um, this kind of school choice is perfectly acceptable. Um, whereas for Canadians where we have a pro-establishment clause of our of our core constitution, um, in Leonid's view, it's uh, extending that uh, Funding for those public schools and those and the and the option to attend those schools to non-religious students violates neutrality. 
So I, I think that there's a, that's certainly not obvious. And, and I take, I take Joanna's side and think it's, it's clearly an, uh, the wrong view of neutrality here. Well, the difference, obvious difference between uh, both Trinity Lutheran and uh, Zellman and what we have in good spirit is that those programs were open to every religious denomination and to, to non-religious groups alike. And that's exactly what the government of Saskatchewan should have done. And, and perhaps I'm getting ahead of the discussion here, but that's exactly what the government of Saskatchewan should have done. But, but, but wait, open quickly, Leonid, the evidentiary record in GSSD was that many religious students of different faiths, Muslim, Jewish, attended Catholic schools and indicated that for whatever reason they preferred to have the option of attending schools where their children were taught in a religious paradigm, which, you know, as, well, as, as a secular person, I can barely understand, but I accept it. They would still have that option in, in a real open school choice program. But the other evidence was that other uh, students were not comfortable with that and that uh, the schools operated by those religious groups would have liked to have the option of educating students from outside of their denomination, but they were denied it. And th this is the crucial difference between those programs that were upheld in the United States, which are, were open to all comers, and this one, which is not. It's it's not open to to anyone it's who wants to attend this Catholic school. I'm afraid I don't understand. To anyone who wants to to attend the Catholic school, but it's not open uh, to non-Catholic schools who want to uh, allow others to attend. And that's that's the difference. Yeah, that's a significant difference. I agree on that. And, and just on the point of, of Canadian history and, and whether it uh, favors establishment or non-establishment of religion, uh, I do want to cite again uh, Justice Tachereau in Chaput and Romain 1955 decision well before the Charter, of course, uh, where he says, in our country there is no state religion, all religious creeds are set on an equal footing. Right, I, I agree with that, that establishment um, when we talk about establishment, we don't necessarily, when I say pro-establishment, I don't necessarily mean non-neutrality. I think that it's the Canadian, the sections of the Canadian Constitution allowing for denominational schooling are an attempt to establish neutrality via mutual establishment in, in places where there are minority religions. I think it's just a clearly a different solution to a different context where there are, where the French or Francophone populations are tend to be Catholic and are uh, are they are seen as subject in, to uh, the the threat of majority legislation um, threatening their own educational prospects in their faith. Okay, I think we should move on to to the resolution at hand um, because I don't think that we're going to resolve all of these questions right this moment. <laughs> So, so this is the this is the resolution that we propose to debate informally, um, and as we're all friends in um, in good spirits, and hopefully we'll still be friends at the end of this. So, so the proposition <laughs> is the resolution is that regardless of the merits of the GSSD decision that we were just speaking of, the government of Saskatchewan was justified in stating its intention to invoke the section thirty three, notwithstanding clause, in response to it. I'll speak for a few minutes. Maxime will speak for a few minutes. Uh, I will speak, of course, in favor of the resolution and Maxime it against. And then Leonid and Jeff will respond to uh, respond to Leonid will respond to me and Jeff will respond to Maxime in due course. So 
my take is this, uh, Leonid, in your blog post about this, you, enti- you, you wrote a blog post about this entitled Chekhov's Gun, um, and I appreciated the literary reference. And your comment was that once the rifle is part of the set, then go off it must, but must this theatrical directive apply to constitutional law? Um, I also am a fan of Russian literature, uh, but my understanding of that aphorism is that Chekhov's gun indicates that every dramatic element in a story must be necessary, and that if a rifle is hanging in Act 1, it must go off. Similarly, Section 33, which is determinedly part of our constitutional structure, which was part of the original constitutional compromise that led to the ratification of the Charter, it was inserted there with the intention that it does regularly go off, or if not regularly, occasionally go off, and for a purpose. And that I don't merely defend the use of Section 33 in this case because it is part of our constitutional text. I also think normatively that Section 33 provides a democratically accountable legislator with legitimate means and a legitimate avenue of participating in the construction of constitutional values. Section 33, as we know from the historical record, is the result of compromise. The Charter would not have been passed without it, and it reflects the unique hybrid nature of the Canadian Confederation. We're speaking today on the at the tail end of the Canada 150 holiday weekend, and so it's timely and appropriate to reflect on the nature of this political system that has been so far quite resilient. Canada has a unique combination of both liberal and democratic values that converged on confederation and has produced an intermediary point between the type of liberal judicial supremacy that we see in the United States and Westminster style parliamentary supremacy. So my contention is that Section 33 properly understood does not override constitutional rights in the sense of nullifying them. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but instead it gives the legislature a defined avenue to enunciate their interpretations of rights based on a different vantage point and with the different types of mechanisms it has for accountability as well as the different access points to information that it has, not to mention differing incentives. I think that we ought to be skeptical that judges have a monopoly on interpretations of rights interpretation. I think it would be nonsensical to construe a legislator's action prescribed by a constitutional provision to permit a wild card get-out-of-jail-free card escape when it is prescribed by the constitutional order. In other words, to say, um, as Andrew Coyne suggested in the National Post, um, that that using the Section 33 notwithstanding clause will allow legislators to run roughshod over constitutional rights. It seems nonsensical to posit that, that they could do this by way of constitutionally explicit means itself. Finally, I'd say that the judiciary's mechanism for expressing rights interpretation is through a highly technical language of legal analysis. Um, and I don't think that Parliament is bound to use that language, and I think that a diversity of rights constructions re- results in a more fulsome and dynamic constitutional order. So those are my opening comments. Maxime? Okay. 
Thanks. Um, uh, of course, I agree about the, the, the compromise uh, section 33 uh, resulted from, but I think it was it's it's fairly clear. Well, I think it is uh, at least it is to me that section uh, by section uh, 23 the constituents. Uh, I'm using like the equivalent of the French word constituant. I'm not sure it's, it's, it works fine in English, but but the, the the constitutional power was trusting the legislators. They would uh, make an exceptional, uh, very cautious use of of, uh, of that section. So, as long as there has to be a difference between the quasi constitutional uh, human rights act and a formal constitution act which entrenches um, rights and freedoms, I, I think it was, it, it, it was wise to have Section 33, but I think everybody should have uh, understood at the time that we were trusting, because I'm making a legitimacy argument, not a, not a positive uh, legal argument, but I think it should have been clear for everybody that uh, the Constitution Act was based on trust, trust, uh, we're trusting that legislators would would make um, a, a, a use of it only in case of necessity, and I don't I don't see uh, where and how in this case we're in in such an exceptional circumstance uh, un, under uh, exceptional circumstances. If if uh, as soon as a government doesn't agree with uh, a superior court, a quiz bench court uh, decision. Um, that government, uh, as the legislature or, 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 or the parliament, to to uh, to resort to to uh, section thirty three, then uh, I don't really see the point of having a, a a a formal constitution act about rights and freedoms. We should have stuck with 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 uh, quasi constitutional uh, human rights acts. And uh, more than that, uh, so far, I think uh, the Canadian uh, practice of uh, the overriding of rights was uh, faithful to what I call a, a global standard about, about uh, uh, rights derogations. And I think this, this is a very concerning and worrying, uh, th this would be a very worrying precedent if we, we, we would start to to override rights in 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 common situation, there, there's there's nothing special here. It's a common situation. So I listened to you carefully, Joanna, but I don't see uh, if I if if I followed you correctly, I don't see uh, what the difference would be under um, under the the, Can the, the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms of, of uh, ninety two. What what would be the difference between that? Formal Constitution Act and the situation we lived under before uh, before 1982 constitutional reform, so before patriation, uh, sounds like you would be very comfortable with 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 what we had uh, before, just just a regime of constitutional acts in in which uh, legislators can uh, define rights. Uh, almost the same way courts uh, do. So I think there there ha there has to be a difference uh, between between juridic um, uh, legal um, acts that have uh, a different legal status.
Well, that would be my my. Thank my you. My um, would you would well, you like ahead, to respond then. to our colleague uh, Maxime? This is the case. This this is the case of the the pro courts uh, <laughs> faction seeking the last word. So um, yes. so uh, my my response uh, to Maxime's point is uh, first of all, you know, his view, his point of view is, um, I would say, the dominant one in Canadian legal in the Canadian Legal Academy, uh, and I think it's, uh, I would say that it's unfortunately at odds with the uh, historical record in terms of what Alan Blakeney and Peter Lougheed thought they were thought they were getting and what they how they thought of the notwithstanding clause they didn't so Maxime's primary contention is that the the clause isn't necessarily objectionable but only but it's only legitimate and it only really has legitimacy as uh as a means of inaugurating a new form of, of middle of a new middle way between parliamentary supremacy and legislative and uh, between parliamentary supremacy and judicial supremacy, um, if it's only used where absolutely necessary in rare cases. So I just don't buy the idea that it needs to be used rarely. I don't think that. If you read Peter Lougheed now and Blakeney's writings on on the clause, they didn't think it would be used rarely. They thought it would be used whenever there were. Um, they thought it would be used for in cases where judges didn't appreciate the realities of government on the ground, or uh, and the leg and legislators needed to needed to uh, needed to ha uh, insulate their their policy decisions from what they took to be. Uh, a lack of judicial appreciation of the realities of government, or were they, or were they really had a principled um, disagreement about the meaning of the rights in question in relationship to the legislation uh, at at stake? Um, and I'd say that there are cases where, it, it, given both of those purposes, where where the clause can be invoked not strictly as a means of necessarily of it, of addressing some some uh, absolute emergency or, or, or necessity. So an example of, of a non-necessary, but I think perfectly justifiable use would be, let, let's say, one of the most, more recent cases that the notwithstanding clauses come up in, in, in uh, previous to the GSSD decision um, was in the Carter case, the assisted suicide case federally. Uh, at the hearings for uh, for extending the declaration of invalidity uh, the, the, that the Crown was seeking, um, Justice Brown on the Supreme Court uh, recommended that the the Parliament just give them asked asked why didn't Parliament just give itself an extension by using notwithstanding clause. Now I don't think that that necessarily would have been wise, but I don't think as a category of usage. Uh, that the notwithstanding clause is, is necessarily uh, always an instrument of principal disagreement. I think it could also be there could be circumstances where governments might need a procedural break. And indeed, the five year expiry on the legislation potentially allows that in some circumstances. Now, I don't think that's the primary purpose of the notwithstanding clause. But it's an example that it's it's the idea that it needs to be used rarely and 
and only necessarily, is it sort of obscures um, the various ways the instrument could be used in different contexts for different purposes. Um, and I think that when we when we think about what its initial purpose was, we have to look not to the unfortunate, uh, in my view, unfortunate uses, blanket uses of it by the Quebec government in the wake of Confederate, in the wake of patriation, but to the discussion of its of its purposes and use and in its proper usage by its architects, who were indeed the Prairie Premiers, Peter Lockheed and Alan Blakeney. And so that's my response. Okay, Le- Leonid, what do you got? <laughs> All right. Yes. So we see two different approaches to how the notwithstanding clause might be used. It might be used, as Maxim suggested, in what we might call train wreck cases, cases where the courts have really gone off the rails. The problem with that approach is that we disagree, as our initial discussion illustrates, about whether any given case is a train wreck. And in those rare cases where everybody would agree, the solution seems quite obvious. The solution is a constitutional amendment. If indeed everybody agrees, then there is the consensus level for that. I would like that there be a consensus that, for example, the Supreme Court's decisions regarding uh, labor uh, collective rights uh, as freedom of association be reversed, but clearly there is no consensus on that. Uh, So this is an example where we might feel very strongly that there ought to be a consensus, but there isn't. Uh, So what will happen in those cases, and this is what Jeff has been advocating, is that Parliaments and legislatures will be using the uh, notwithstanding clause not because it's a train wreck and there is a consensus that the train wreck needs to be cleared away, but simply because of routine disagreements with the courts. Well, if that's the approach you're proposing, then you're really not proposing, uh, you're not really not committed to a constitutional supremacy, you want to go back on the 1982 uh, constitutional settlement and you want to go back to a regime of parliamentary supremacy, which is not a terrible thing. Canada was a free country prior to 1982. I live in New Zealand now, which is a free country despite being uh, under uh, parliamentary supremacy as well. Uh, But it's not the constitutional system that we have developed over the last 35 years in Canada. Now, we might think that, well, good spirit is a really, if not a train wreck in the sense that we all agree that it was a horrible decision, at least there is a very important uh, governing consideration here, which is school choice and preserving educational choices for people who are going to be affected by that decision if and when it actually comes into force. Recall that the... Uh, court, uh, Justice Lay, actually suspended his declaration of unconstitutionality for 18 months, and it would have been suspended for longer uh, during the appeals process. But if and when it actually comes into force, people will be affected. Uh, and so perhaps the Justice Lay failed to appreciate the disruption that his decision would cause. And so the realities of governing to which Jeff uh, was referring make it necessary to uh, override his decision. Well, if school choice is so important as to justify overriding uh, the rights of uh, of people and organizations who are being uh, discriminated against by the, the current regime in Saskatchewan, and surely it's worth a little tax raise 
to open up the school system and to give meaningful school choice, not just to those who are okay with sending their children to Catholic schools, but also to those who are not. Otherwise, uh, if the majority of the people of Saskatchewan through their uh, elected representatives are not willing to put their money where their mouth is, it looks an awful lot like a majority indulging its preferences at the expense of the minority. And this is exactly what happened, not just in the initial use of the, the blanket use of the notwithstanding clause in Quebec in 1982, which I agree we don't need to talk about because it was so unusual, but the, the one substantive case of the, the use of the notwithstanding clause in Quebec after the Supreme Court's decision in Ford, uh, that decision held that Quebec could not constitutionally uh, or actually in, in accordance with Quebec's own uh, Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms uh, prohibit all use of English language in commercial advertising. It could make French predominant but not ban English completely. Uh, and so the, there was a huge crowd demonstrating against that decision in Montreal and the government of Robert Bourassa said, well, we have keeping social peace is more important than individual rights. So let's indulge the preferences of this majority or perhaps a very loud, angry minority at the expense of this other minority, the, the Anglophone minority in that case. And this is what's going to happen if the notwithstanding clause is going is used regularly. Uh, the other point to make is that once you remove the norm, which has been a norm for these past almost 30 years after that uh, Quebec situation against using the notwithstanding clause, we already know from the declarations of politicians in the conservative leadership race that the clause is going to be used regularly. Uh, it's not going to be used in just very important cases. It's going to be used for all sorts of purposes, including completely silly ones. We are going to turn the clock back on the charter and on its protection of uh, individual rights against the whims and wills of the majorities. Uh, and finally, both Joanna and Jeff, you've been saying that, uh, well, the clause is legitimate and using it is legitimate because it's there, it's an essential part of the constitutional settlement and that is indeed the uh, subject of my post on Chekhov's gun. Uh, what you are saying is, yes, yes, there's this gun and so it must go off. So let me just uh, quote myself and, and read the, the conclusion of that post. Uh, I wrote, as Chekhov knew, placing a loaded rifle on the stage creates an unstable situation. A good dramatist will resolve the instability with a bang and probably some casualties. But constitutional actors are not comedians. Even if they are put in a position where a loaded gun is within their reach, their responsibility is not to fire it, but to keep it safe if they cannot unload it, and to instruct those who follow them to do likewise. As for constitutional critics, they should not be cheering for the most theatrical resolution. They might enjoy a drama, but when the shots are fired, they are likely to be aimed at the audience. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just make a quick comment um, about Leonid and, and Max's 
uh, Max's comments about this. I, I think that you brought up the example of the Conservative Party of Canada leadership candidates. I think Lisa Raitt and Kevin O'Leary both bragging that they would regularly use the notwithstanding clause um, in order to advance certain policy goals. I, I think Jeff and I would both say that it should not be wielded just in order to advance some attractive or desired, politically desired policy goal. Rather, its proper use should be used to express substantive constitutional disagreements. And that leads into my second point, which is both Maxime and Leonid seem to assume that using the notwithstanding clause results in a constitutional override and in a negating of the constitutional order. And I, I don't concede that. I think rather it invites legislative participation in constructing charter rights. So I don't think that uh, that adopting a norm that it's acceptable and legitimate to use the notwithstanding clause brings us back to a quasi-constitutional human rights bill era. I think rather its legitimate use envisions a constitutional order where constitutional rights are not just fleshed out by technical intellectual jurists in the form of judges and especially appellate judges, but also can be engaged with with democratically elected uh, governing bodies, who, by the way, I would also add, and I'm sure Jeff will be fast to point this out, um, the Section 33 notwithstanding clause is also not a nuclear option in the sense that it expires after five years. So I would not, uh, I, I would tone down the rhetoric about us going back in time um, and giving in to populist heat, heated whims um, by, by using the notwithstanding clause. I, I really think that it needn't be as extreme as that. Thanks for listening. Again, tune in next week for part two of our discussion and also visit us online at runnymeadsociety.ca, runnymeadsoc on Twitter. My Twitter is J-O-B-E-A-R-O-N, Joe Barron, and see what we've got going on. Thanks so much for watching.